a tiny hey ray instead of a hey I know you. ray well there you did it again but all right you <laughs> you threw me off dave dave it's been a while since we uh, last talked and yeah. um i'm excited for another episode yeah. and uh what has it been like you know, one week wow wow it's yeah but here so pandemic, much has like, happened so much has happened yeah. i think it feels like longer than a week doesn't it i did get to have a Real exciting adventure this last week, though. Uh, let me guess. You had your fourth colonoscopy. <laughs> uh, no, I have those uh, weekly now. Dave. Uh, <laughs> no, I can't have those anymore. Man, all the fun of colonoscopies. Yeah. But I, I got to go around the island. I have lived on this island, Revillagigedo Island, for 38 years. And it just so happens that last week somebody showed up in a beautiful boat. They said, hey, we're going over to Misty Fjords. And I said, well, you know, I've... Never been around this island, and they and got how the long have you me. lived there? Thirty-eight freaking years. Never been all the way around. I've been around the south, I've been to the north, but never all the way around. Right. So you circumnavigated Revilla Hejedo, and how big is it in square miles? Do you have any idea? It's pretty massive, I, isn't it? It's about. It is this. It is actually about the size of Rhode Island, which is technically not an island. But that's but, tiny. Uh, but Rhode Island is like whenever they want to refer to something small, they say Rhode well, Island. Uh, Revillagigedo, as we call Revilla here, is 50 miles tall. Right. So north to south and then 35 wide. And oh, that's pretty big. Yeah. You know, and actually in terms of big, you know, I was like, what are the biggest islands in the United States? I found out that out of the top 20. Can I guess? We, we are number 12. Really? But guess you want to. All right. I'll say so uh, the Hawaii, the big island is uh, number one. You got it right, Okay. Man. And then I'll guess uh, that um, Prince of Wales is number two, maybe, or three? Four. Four. Then would yeah. it be uh, Honolulu as number two, maybe? No, Honolulu's No, 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 no. All right. Oh, hold, no. hold on. Kodiak? No, no. Kodiak. Really? Kodiak, you got it. All right. Number oh. two. Whoa, Kodiak. Number three is? Number three is? is oh, drum roll. Oh, number three would be, oh, uh, I used to Quisha. live there, actually. I lived in that island for oh, three years. Oh, oh, right. It would be uh, Vancouver Island. Oh, no, that's Canada. It wants to be the next state, Dave. Oh, Puerto Rico. Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. Oh. But, uh, hey, of the top 20, uh, three, three are from Hawaii, and 15 are from Alaska. Wow. One is Puerto Rico, and there's one other really big island uh, in one state. In the United Snakes of America, I would have right. to guess uh, Big Island. Um, it's very long. It's yeah, very, very Long Island. Long oh, Island. Right. I got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Anyways, it was so cool to go around the island, and what was cool. I was flew that, around uh, the island once, but seeing it you? from yeah, uh, well, on a sightseeing plane when I first moved to Ketchikan. But it's not wow. the same when you're there at ocean level with the doll porpoises and the whales. There, and... We actually did have doll porpoises uh, on the bow of the boat, and we got to go into the, some of the, the fjords, and actually some of the fjords I've never been into. And I love to say fjord, so it's, uh, <laughs> it has, you know, Misty Fjords is spelled with the traditional J. Well, for those of you who don't know Ketchikan, Misty Fjords is totally east of Revilla Gehedo Island. Well, it's the it's the eastern half of the island. Yeah, but it's part of it's not part of Alaska. Is it Alaska or is it Canada? 
No, no, what's Alaska? It is dude? Alaska. It's Alaska, yeah, yeah. But it's this long finger-like fjord that has these amazing. What is it? Glaciers or is it steep walls? Why is this? I've never been there. Uh, it's pretty amazing. There are very steep walls, and uh, it's a lot of volcanic rock. In fact, there's uh, Eddy Stone, New Eddy Stone Rock is basically a volcanic plug that just oh, right. sticks up out of the middle of the channel there. Oh. But Ravilica Gatalan has three deep fjords within it. It's got George Inlet, and it's got Carroll and Thornarm, but then it's surrounded by the mainland. So the mainland right, is right. what surrounds the whole thing. Right. So. Being able to go up Beam Canal and uh, Vancouver, George Vancouver, the white guy that came up here in 1793, he named a lot of the spots, uh, gave him the English names. Of course, the you know traditional Clinket names um, are still around. So, yeah. anyways, it's yeah. very cool to. Uh, it's a shame how uh, it. the white the white folks come in and say, uh, "I claim this land go. for our yes. king," but you indigenous I, people have been here right. for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I am on the traditional and contemporary lands of the Clinket people, and it's so cool to be here. And but you have a story about Vancouver and Traders Cove, right? Well, uh, the guy that I was going with, um, Bill uh, Urschel is his name, and I was on his boat, the Endeavor. He's named <laughs> it after Cook's boat. Yeah, and uh, we he's kind of a bit of a historian, and so we retraced uh, Vancouver's route. It was very well. Basically, he went around the island. But I never knew that he left his shift of discovery down by Duke Island. Where's Duke? Then he took Duke is to the south of Ketchikan. So he left the big ship, yeah, to the south of Ketchikan, sort of on the outside. Right. So he left that and basically took two smaller boats that you know uh, y'alls, uh, y'alls, yeah. And uh, perhaps one of them had a sail, and you know they sure, would row. Sure. They went all they rode all the way around, man. And, and on the way, Mister Vancouver uh, had several. Uh, encounters with the local Clinket people, and all of them what good except for one, uh, where it got very tense, and then things, uh, the trading that was going on, it started, it, this is up just north of Ketchikan, on August 12th, 1793, I know all this stuff now, it's in my head, uh, <laughs> there was an encounter that happened, What's he named it Trader's Cove, but the native uh, folks, the Clinket people that came out in the canoes, to meet the y'alls, um, initially started a trade, but then there was there was some tension, and uh, things went from bad to worse, and uh, guns came out, spears came out, and there's a point that's called Escape Point. We actually found that spot. Wow. We figured out the exact wow. spot, you know? You and, mean where uh, the white people escaped? True. Right. True that. Right. And... Uh, but yeah, then the next day, he was he had other encounters with other Clinton people, and the trading went well, and... Um, so, yeah, but that was the beginning of white Well, you know, Captain Cook, when uh, his voyage arrived in New Zealand, I think a sister ship of his commanded by a Captain Funero, uh, when they arrived, um, they had a much more disastrous consequence. Um, ten of their men were killed and eaten by the Maori. We say Maori, but the correct pronunciation is Maori. Uh, I lived there for a bit, so uh, hopefully I did that right. And, um, yeah, their men were killed and eaten. So uh, that was uh, kind of indigenous people, one European, nothing. But eventually things changed, and we all know that story. But, hey. Well, wait a minute. No, no actually, of all the places on the planet, yeah. New Zealand is the one place 
where the English pretty much did not get an upper hand, and they had a war, and they signed a treaty. Hmm. And they kept their word? Not without problems, social and economic, but uh, the Maori are a strong force in New Zealand today, hmm. and uh, they're an awesome culture. The Treaty of Waitangi was signed on 6th of February, 1840 by the British Crown and representatives of the Maori chiefs from the North Island of New Zealand. It's become a document of central importance to the history, the political constitution of the state, and to the national mythos of New Zealand. It's played a major role in framing the political relations between the New Zealand government and the Maori population. Yeah, history, history, history. Wow. So, uh... But, you know, on this show, we talk about paleo history. That's right. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know what, we, though? We're kind of but interesting, though. The New Zealand is the Pacific Islander for the great diaspora of uh, the Indonesians who took to the great Pacific migration. And they settled in New Zealand. They settled throughout the Pacific Islands as far as uh, Fiji and Tonga. Uh, they never made it to Pitcairn, but the farthest north they made it to was the is the most isolated island archipelago on the planet, and that is I called say archi archipelago. Archipelago. Is I say. Well, is it archipelago or archipelago? <laughs> what is it? I've never heard anybody say archipelago. <laughs> you know, actually, Dave, uh, you have a bad case of. Uh, Hippopotamonstrosis quipedaliophobia. Is that you know what that is? I'm afraid. I've been practicing that. I'm afraid to say a certain word, or I just mispronounce them all the time. That's that's actually a fear of big words. I don't have a fear. I just mispronounce them incorrectly. Well, the, you should have a fear at this point, but it's archipelago. But I think you were building up to you talking about maybe where our guest today is from. That's right. The Hawaiian archipelago, the arc of islands uh, that are recently formed in geologic time, I guess, the big island of uh, 500 million. We're talking about Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. And but no, the big I'm island so is, yeah, but, but there's parts of the big island that are days old. True that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. The furthest west you go are the oldest islands in the Hawaiian chain. Oh, is that chain. how it is? Yeah. Because it's a, oh, okay. it was a moving hotspot, and it's still oh, it's still moving. Right. Yeah. Right. Just like Yellowstone. And there's a new island being formed as we speak below yeah. the sea, yeah, it's and called it's coming up. Lo, lo, Loihi, I think. Yes, it's pronounced Loihi, and it's a seamount that represents the next island in the Hawaiian island chain as the Pacific Plate continues to move over the Hawaiian hotspot. The island is just 20 miles off the southeast coast of Hawaii and sits at 10,100 feet above the ocean floor and probably will take as much as 200,000 years to reach the ocean surface, all depending on the eruption rate. That's more white sands for tourists to destroy 200,000 years from now. Now, how do you know Sam gone? I know Sam Gunn. Sam Gunn is our guest today, and I know him basically because of a thing called the internet. <laughs> if you go, I mean, oh, seriously, right. the trilobite, trilobite webpage, which is absolutely insane and comprehensive. It's insanely cool, and if you have a trilobite problem, which I do, I'm trilobite obsessed, so you start Googling when this thing called the internet came along. I would Google it. And actually, before Wikipedia even, there was Sam's site. And uh, I just was so enthralled with this. I began to email him, you know, fan mail. And then uh, 
He's super knowledgeable. He is a trilobitophiliac, as it were, yeah. a love of ancient arthropods. Yep. That's what we share. Yep. And I want to ask him why. You know, why? Let's let's call up Sam and let's meet Sam. And he's born and raised in Hawaii. He's uh, Sam Gunn third. So he's got deep family connections there, uh, born and raised. And he is also uh, a cultural expert. We'll talk trilobites, but then we need to really talk to him about uh, the work with, that he's done with uh, preserving the, uh, Hawaiian culture and how actually maybe we can learn as a planet from what uh, happened in Hawaii right. uh, hundreds of years ago. So shall we call him up? No. <laughs> God, Dave, come on, let's call him up. Okay. I got I got my little trilobite stuff all around all right. me here. Got trilobites to show him. I'm going to take right. a snapshot. <laughs> Um, should I get my trilobite too that I found or what? Well, yeah, you know, I've got trilobites. I asked Sam, he wanted to do the office. I got, we got to do the screenshot. Did so you find one. that one? This is one I found, man. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to get mine. I'll have to see if he knows what it is. If I hold it up, he'll go, oh. Yeah, he'll probably know what it is. Hey, Dave, meet Sam Ohugon third biocultural ecologist senior scientist and cultural advisor for the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii and a trilobitologist or a trilobitophiliac just like me <laughs> since, <laughs> since, since the last millennium. Hey, Sam, it is great to meet you. We've talked on the phone, we've emailed, but it's so good to see you here in virtual virtual land. Yeah, this is great. And I, I see I got the right uh, memo that we're all wearing black or really dark colors. <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you, Sam. And uh, you know that uh, raised spirit animal, he has two of them. One is the ratfish and the other one is the trilobite. There it is on his uh, arm tattooed in ink. My very first trilobite, a flaming trilobite. Awesome. My very first tattoo, I should say. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So, uh, but Sam, the most important question are you a paleo nerd and how did you become one? You know, I think uh, I think I qualify because anybody who's spent, you know, over a decade being obsessed by trilobites <laughs> and creating a website with about 100 pages worth of information on it um, has got to qualify. If that doesn't qualify, I don't know what does. It's amazing. It's trilobite.info and it is, you can just dive down that trilobite wormhole. It is just comprehensive. You have years in this page. Yeah. And that's how I met you, Sam, is that in the early days of the internet, uh, I would Google up trilobite when it was a new thing. And uh, there what, you trilobites were. trilobites or the internet? <laughs> well, yeah, both. <laughs> what is the internet? But I remember I just, you know, I just, one of the very first thing I Googled up and your your site came up and your site still is like at least number three in the trilobite world. But how does a guy who's born and raised in admittedly fossil deprived Hawaii become, you were going to maybe push back on that. There are very few fossils in Hawaii, but how did you become a, a fossil guy? Living in Hawaii. Hawaii is uh, a very young place geologically, right? The oldest of our of our rocks is Pleistocene in age. Wow. Um, the youngest island is just is less than half a million years old, and ironically, it's the largest and volcanically active island of Hawaii. And the oldest of the main islands is only six million years old. <laughs> so the only yeah, so the only kinds of fossils you're going to get are things like raised reef Pleistocene um, corals and shells and um, there are quite a few of them that don't exist anymore, and so they count as extinct fossil creatures. And the other is really cool. It's uh, when you have uh, a cinder eruption 
that completely overwhelms a, a forest. Oh. In that one black organic layer packed underneath all of the cinders, especially if it was raining, and you know how volcanic eruptions can generate their own weather and create the thunderstorms right over them, right? So you'll have you'll have these amazing leaf impressions of various species, and some of them are identifiable down to the venation and, wow. and all those kinds of things. Wow. So yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to go to Hawaii. Well, we Alaskans are very fond of Hawaii. I've been there a few times. I did remember seeing some like palm tree trunks that were in the shape of a tree trunk, but they were volcanic rock. So it was the impression. Yeah, those are called lava molds or tree right, molds, right. right? Because the lava moves quickly through a forest and when they hit the living tree, the tree flashes into steam and freezes the lava right oh, around the tree. Oh, I would think that the lava so, would be too hot and more powerful and would just vaporize the tree, but it actually creates yeah. molds. Yes, it does. And inside you can see the charcoal, you know, you know how when charcoal is filled with plaster, it would have all these crack, uh, crack patterns in them. So all of that kind of stuff happens. But my interest in trilobites began... Um, Probably, gosh, in childhood. Yeah. I was, uh, Time Life had that book, The Wonders of Life on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had that and too. And well, there was one whole section on the evolution of life, and trilobites were, uh, were a fairly major part of that, of that particular handling. So there was this kind of like uh, side, side fascination. Yeah. But when I, was in, uh, when I was in grad school at Davis. UC Davis, yeah. I was an um, evolutionary biologist, and so I also took paleontology there. And when we got to the Paleozoic, and you got to the point where the first complex organisms come into being, and, and trilobites are like the marker for the start of the Cambrian, or at least they were right. at that time. Now right. we know that there's a whole series of the Cambrian that existed before trilobites, and that from series two to two on, trilobites appear. In fact, trilobites mark where series two begins. Can I ask you this, for the uninitiated, why are trilobites just so cool? You know, and what is a trilobite? You know, what, what, what <laughs> wait, is wait, it hold about on, hold them? On. I don't know if, they, look at, what, what? I don't know if they're cool. I mean, they are cool, but I, <laughs> I wouldn't cool. want to find one in my bed. Oh, sure you would. Well, why wouldn't you? Now, I love spiders, yeah. <laughs> I love insects, I love all, I'll pick up any creepy crawly, I love doing that, but when you look at it, a trilobite or a horseshoe crab or a pill bug, you wouldn't want one in your bed. Now, I don't mind a snake oh, in my bed or a cat or a dog, but they are foreign to us humans being an arthropod. They might be foreign to a human who's not an ocean person, but when you're walking in the ocean all the time and there are crabs and shrimp and lobsters scuttling around, um, those kinds of multi-legged shelled creatures are, are part of the normal background. And so... To, to have one, I mean, some of the trilobite fossils that I've seen are so beautifully preserved that they look like they could get up and walk away. Wow. And, and I imagine them doing so. Uh, in fact, I have a special um, specimen that, that is a set of trilobite tracks. And, uh, wow. and then I had a particular trilobite that was just the right size, and I put it... Uh, right at the end of the track. Wow. And people come by and, and take a look at that and go, what? Well, how did that happen? <laughs> so, and I have to admit that it was completely... So you have a trace a trace fossil of a trilobite walking through sediment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Describe the trilobite. But really, I want to just get back to what has attracted you. Can you, ex can you ex to the layman, why love trilobites as much as you do, yeah. as much as we do? Funny that you should ask that because well, on the wall of my office, there's a little essay that says why trilobites 
you know, and, and it's subtitled, Why Should a Conservation Biologist Be Interested in Trilobites? And it turns out that trilobites are the most diverse fossil mac macrofaunal item on Earth. You know, you look at dinosaurs and they're people are fascinated by dinosaurs, but there are only 200 or 300 described fossil dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And there are close to now 30,000 described trilobite fossils. Really? Whoa. And these are, these are ones that have been named. And so think of all the ones that are discovered every year and are adding to that list. Um, so if you're interested in conservation biology or in biological diversity at all, then trilobites represent the first global explosion of biological diversity. Wow. And so anyone who's interested in diversity would be interested in them. And the fact that they lasted 291 million years, you know, against our paltry 4 million. Yeah, well, you know, they didn't even, they didn't hit that 300 million year run. They did 2 Well, wait, they died out at the Permian-Triassic extinction event? Yes, they did, when 95%, along with 95% of life in the, in the oceans. Well, what, what was the trilobite heyday? They show up in the early Cambrian, they make it into the Permian, they don't make it to the PT extinction event. They're sort of... Uh, whimpering out Wait, they don't point. make it to the pt extinction they die they out. make it right to it but there's very there at that point their diversity is is greatly declined right sam yeah they were down to, to only two families of yeah. the hundreds of different families of trilobites and the cambrian and the ordovician were their heyday that was the heyday. that's when they had their big explosion and then there was the order of uh cambrian ordovician extinction event and that cut them down quite a bit but the ordovician explosion included trilobites and so they were still you know, the kings of the of the nearshore uh, <laughs> uh, marine fauna at the but time. But trilobites uh, occupied all niches. They were benthic, deep sea. They were, they ate algae. They were meat eaters. They, they, they were everything, weren't they? they? Yeah, they were bottom feeders. They were pelagic ones that swam in the water column and had huge round eyes that could see in 360 degrees so that, because they had to, right? Above and below them and to all sides. So it's just amazing the, the kinds of adaptations that they found. And just recently, um, they found some in estuarine, um, <gasps> estuarine deposits, fresh which means water? that they were, they were moving their way upstream. Into fresh so water, that is wow. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody had, nobody had documented that before, but so, uh, for the first time, a good, a good publication Would that, that demonstrated the deposits. Would that be late in their existence on the Earth? So in other words, they could have Actually, been land animals at one point if they hadn't died out? Well, they started doing that in the Cambrian. So they still had their gills under their legs, you know, and so they had a hard time getting out of the water, but they were getting into mixohaline and, and fresher environments, which is cool. Well, you know, when we look at what they're related to, and it blows my mind, you know, people always say they're related to horseshoe crabs. You can see that. So those are maybe the closest relatives on Earth, but then actually equally as close are spiders, mm -hmm. which blows my mind. And in a way, I think of spiders as terrestrial trilobites. Well, you could, definitely. Spiders don't have as many legs, right. but even, even the group that trilobites and spiders are in are called the arachnomorpha, right? And so... And so you know it from that arachnomorpha thing that they're at the root of modern arachnids, and trilobites happen to be in that same group. So, but is there yeah. a transitional animal or a, a basal animal that splits off into trilobite on one side and, and arachnids and spiders on the other? Because a spider does not look really much like a trilobite. No, it doesn't at all, right? Spiders will have eight legs. Trilobites can have you know, up to hundreds. Um, 
But the, I guess the key thing is during the Cambrian explosion, there were so many different experiments and body forms and, and the like that uh, it is only by looking at those earliest, most basal arthropods that you get a feel for where the chelicerates came from, you know, that, that group that includes spiders. Chelicerates, what's it, say that again, chelicerate? Uh, chelicerates are, are what they are. Keely, keely are claws. Oh. And so if you think of a scorpion, a scorpion um, is a spider relative, right? right? They're both arachnids. And so some of the earliest arthropods that bore keely okay. belong to the chelicerates, yeah. So let me ask you this, Sam, just getting back to the website, you, the internet was a new thing. You started doing these drawings, this pictorial guide to trilobites. You've drawn thousands of them maybe at this point, right? <laughs> Certainly hundreds. But what are you using? How are you doing as artist to artist? What are you doing to, to render your trilobites? You know, the, the trilobite website, of course, is way more than, than drawings. But right. Yeah, yeah. There's so much more. I do love to draw. And the, the fun thing is that I was turned on to trilobites and their diversity and their classification by the 1997 Treatise on Invertebrate Biology. Hmm. It is called the Bible of Trilobites, or at least the 1955 one, which covered all known trilobites at the time was considered the Bible of Trilobitology. And in 1997, they started on a revision of the Trilobite Bible, but they could only do two of the orders. In fact, only one of the orders, Red Lichida. Oh, and Agnostida, okay, so they Red did Lichida is one of the earliest ones, right? Yes, yes, the basal, the basal Trilobites. And the Agnostida are those uh, highly reduced ones with just two, Cephalon and and, uh, and pygidium are almost the same size and shape, and they just have two segments in between that allow them to close like a clamshell. Now, the pygidium is the butt, right? Yes, and the cephalon is the head. And the center, is it a thorax, or what would you call it? It's a thorax. Oh, it is. And people think that that's what, they think that's what trilobite means, but trilobite actually is these in this direction. There's a middle axial lobe and two side lobes, and that's what trilobite trilobite. Uh, so you held your fingers sideways, which is incorrect, and then you push them up to the top, to the three fingers pointing at the ceiling. So what's the what's the, yes. uh, it's the what's the fu finger part? What is that? <laughs> that one is called the axial, the axial, the axial lobe, because it's on the axis of right. the body. And the two side ones are the plural lobes, because they're right. the ribs essentially of the. And do trilobite. all trilobites roll up into a ball like a like a pill bug? Some of them did it really well and were highly adapted to do so, so that there were even grooves on their tail that fit the shape of the head, oh. which is really cool. But others of them, they know, could not enroll uh, very well. Enrolling is what they what they call that. So a lot of the very spiny ones, for example, have a hard time enrolling properly, right? Because the spines get in the way. I've seen some uh, fossils that are the most amazing preparation where they've teased out of the rock these spines and antenna and feet. I mean, it is absolutely delicate stuff that you can't believe mm -hmm. was a fossil. And, then, and it would be solid rock. Um, is that a type of preservation that is uncommon, common, or... Uh, is it all made up from some place in uh, Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> or or in Morocco. Morocco, right. Um, it's, it's highly rare to find a completely articulated trilobite. Most of the fossils that you find, like the one that you showed me a little bit earlier before we started this podcast, are parts. You might have a cephalon, you might have a, a pygidium, you might have pieces of pluri, and there might be a mishmash of trilobite pieces altogether. That's the most common form that you find. 
when you find a complete one, it's an amazing thing already. Right. Right. And when you find one that's complete and has delicate spines intact or the soft body parts, only the top of the trilobite was hard and the underside was very soft, including the legs. And so uh, those rarely are preserved. telling us about the trilobite bible that turned you on you started drawing and i just want to get back to how were you drawing these are you using pen and ink or you were you using the computer these are hard questions you? ray we're going to what, yeah, no, no, what, what, what questions are what, cool. what drove you to then share this with the world and start building this that website has to take you lots and lots of time well it's fun nowadays i use adobe illustrator okay um and in the past i would use uh macromedia freehand uh, which maybe you're familiar with. But either way, it's a vector drawing uh, program. And I did that so that I could scale those images to any size so ah. that when you when you create a JPEG out of them, it doesn't look uh, staircasey. So the images were more for my own, uh, my own thought process. Really? The Trilobite Bible identified perhaps eight different orders of trilobites. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what trilobite would belong to what order. There was so much bewildering variation within each order that I needed to convince myself that I could understand how they were classifying trilobites. And so when that invertebrate Bible came out, the treatise of invertebrate biology, uh, volume zero, <laughs> volume O actually, I think it's letters, volume O for trilobites, I needed to figure it out. And the first thing you do is, uh, how are they naming the different cephalon, thorax, pygidium, genal spines, wow. libregena, you know, all of those pieces. So I created a, a glossary. And then I was using HTML wow. to link between the glossary and images that oh. I saw. So that I could say, oh, yeah, that's the cephalon. And this, okay, the genal spine is described this way. And wow. the nature of the plurie I described this way. So let me get this. Your, the website actually helped you sort out the orders. And by doing that, you began to do the science of helping to classify them. Is that what I'm hearing? It wasn't even a website at the time. I was using HTML because that was the fastest way to link between right. things. Oh, right. Wow. right. And by the time I had all of the eight orders um, up, and I could convince myself that, yes, if you hand me a specimen, I'll be able to tell you what order it is because of this and this and this and this and this. And so I would be identifying the key characteristics that define a particular order of trilobite and then creating images that show what those characteristics are in, a, in an actual illustration. Wow. And then I realized I've created a guide to the orders of trilobites. And it's already a website, and I can already just throw it onto the web. With HTML, you could just upload it, and they all connect. Exactly. So tell me what an order is as far yeah. as genera, family, and all that. Genera. Genera. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you know the uh, you know the mnemonic. It's it's picofigs. Uh, P i c o f i g s. Okay, so that's phylum. Right. Mm-hmm. Phylum. Wait, what's the next one? 
I have other ones. Uh, I have another. I have a uh, King Philip can only fake good sex, but uh, oh, right, what's right, the right. I in there? Kingdom, <laughs> yeah, phylum. Yeah. What, what's the next one? C? Class. Well, class. Yeah, class, order, right. genus, species. Okay, so order. Now tell me what would separate. Well, how many orders of trilobites are there? Well, there used to be eight. When I started in 1999, there were eight, and there are now 12. Okay. Wow. And what, what's the difference between them? Well, the difference between them is a highly complex thing that you need to have a website to, to figure right. out. Um, um, one of the problems is that one of the largest orders, the Tichopariida, was always recognized as a garbage heap. The others were well-defined, and you could say, oh, this is a Redlichiida because it has this, this, and this characteristic. Um, this one's a Corynexolchida because it's spiny and has this, you know. Um, but there was a whole bunch of primitive trilobites that were joined only by characteristics that weren't really stand, they didn't really stand out. And everybody lumped whatever didn't belong to the other orders into that Into the order, junk order. Into the garbage heap. And so the, the split out, so the orders began when they took the most distinctive of that large order and said, okay, these we can recognize as some all sharing these characteristics. So we're going to pull out the Harpetida, we're going to pull out the Trinucleida, we're going to pull out the Proetida, you know, all of those uh, different orders. So an order, an order is a larger group. Did, Sam, did you actually help sort out these orders and erect some of these new orders? Or are you working with trilobitologists to, to do this or, or what? Yeah, my role isn't to to uh, publish anything. Right. I'm not a, a systematist and I'm not a paleontologist. I'm a conservation biologist. Right. On the other hand, this this website has introduced me to so many prominent um, trilobitologists in the world um, that it's been an amazing thing to me. Because I, if I was scratching my head over a particular order, mm -hmm. nowadays in the world of email, you can just shoot an email right. to the right. to Dr. Richard Forty at the Natural History Museum in London. And, and say, I'm puzzled about this. Your paper said this, and yet I can't, wow. you know, why is this thing a member of the... And then he was very kind to respond. And many of them would say, thank you so much for your website. Oh, it, I'm it using it in my classes to introduce my students to trilobites. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm looking at the uh, diagram of the systematic relationship and chronological extent of trilobite orders. And it's beautiful because it shows not only a little diagrams of the body plans, but it has the fingers of how they reach up into the ages of time from the Cambrian to the Permian. And uh, again, listeners, you have to check out trilobites.info. It is absolutely a, a rabbit hole of arthropod creatures. Now question, an isopod, is an isopod, It's they're, they're huge and they're small and they're all over the ocean and they are alive today, they look kind of like trilobites, don't they? Or there's they... a lot of things that look like them, but they're trilobite wannabes. Oh. Sam, what is... there's yes, a lot of fake, fake trilobites. I, I created a page that talks about, uh, about is this a trilobite <laughs> or I found the living trilobite? And uh, from water pennies to trilobite beetles to ice, giant isopods in the benthic uh, zone. But if you're if you're going to be technical about it, crustaceans have completely different mouth parts oh. um, and their legs are armored, are armored just as much as their backs are, whereas a trilobite is only armored on the back and everything on the underside is soft. Oh. So so it's uh, it's an interesting thing. And when a trilobite is eating, it its mouth is just where it puts its food, but it eats much like a horseshoe crab. You know that horseshoe crabs have between their legs, where the two legs join the body, 
is spiny and has all of these uh, all of these protuberances that huh. they use to crush their food up up and down their body length on the ventral side. And when it becomes mushed up enough to put into the mouth, then the legs work the, work the food up I to their mouth and they that. eat that way. I didn't know that. So they're external. They externally yeah. crunch their food and then push it up to their, their esophagus. Yeah. <laughs> Is it how we know that some of the trilobites, like uh, I, I saw on your website, Olonoides, the terror of the Burgess Shale. <laughs> and uh, Olonoides was crushing it. You, you could tell just by the way it's built that it's crushing other creatures and... By the way, that was a tropical bird that decided to sing during our interview with Sam. After all, he is in Hawaii. What a joy it was to hear that. How do you tell that it's predatory? Yeah, you could tell because the bases of the legs are called nathobases, mm -hmm. and some trilobite nathobases are relatively simple. And Olenoides has these sharp, thick spines at the base of the nathobase, and so you knew it could tear up things with that. I always thought, Ray, that you should draw a picture of a smiling trilobite just by showing its underside, curving it a little bit, and then having the because that's where it's that's where its mouth would be, oh, right, really? right huh. along the midline. I like of the... that. <laughs> we should we should talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your website is so widely loved. Uh, I was just uh, thank you for giving me a shout out on Facebook just moments ago. I saw that, but. Somebody also posted that they were in the mountains of Portugal and they came across a whole exhibit in Portuguese and it was all based on your work and it was in Portuguese. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was in a medieval village near <laughs> the border of Spain in Portugal and they were uh, they were just walking along there being a tourist and enjoying the cobblestones and then here on a on a banner <laughs> is my name and they they uh, went, both of them were co-workers of mine. Uh, in the past, and, and so they were just blown away because here they are thousands of miles from Hawaii, but that's how the trilobite subculture is. It's global, it's pervasive, and you never know where you're going to find them. So you used to do the trilobite of the month on your website. Are you just doing that on the trilobite group on Facebook now? or is, Tell us about the trilobite of the month and how do you go about selecting them? Well, you know, like I said, there are 30,000 described species of trilobites. So you could <laughs> do a different trilobite every month for a long, for your long lifetime. time. Yeah, pretty much. And so what I do is now that there's a whole community of people that, that love trilobites, I will search through their photo albums and I'll find a particularly un interesting one. Um, and then I would ask them, would you would you mind if I showcase your trilobite as a trilobite of the month on, ah. on the Facebook? And they're almost always, they say, thank you, oh, thank, thank you God. so much. <laughs> I have been chosen. <laughs> do you yourself have a vast, uh, do you just, do you collect them yourself? Uh, do you have a big, or do you, and do you dig them yourself? I do not dig them. One of these days I would like to do that. Oh, wow. I probably have the, I probably have the largest trilobite collection uh, in the state of Hawaii. Um, and I remember when Richard Forty, who's the who's the old man of trilobites now mm. at the at the Natural Museum in uh, London, he was writing a book on uh, geology, global geology, and he wanted a chapter on Hawaii. And so he was in Hawaii, oh. um, and he and I had corresponded. And so he says, "Let's have lunch, and I want to talk to you about the Hawaiian traditions regarding geology." Mm. Um, wow. And so uh, he took me to lunch in a nice downtown restaurant, and then. And then we went up to my office and spent like three hours going one by one through every single one of my specimens. Wow. And he would, 
telling telling me about things and then it's the kind of thing that you have to be a paleo nerd to be completely to be sad that it ended yeah. after three hours yeah. of that <laughs> what is the largest trilobite and the smallest the most ferocious and the most docile <laughs> and the coolest <laughs> well you know the largest one uh, the largest one so far is isotelus rex and i love the fact oh, that they use like tyrannosaurus yeah. rex right? isotelus how rex how big Isotelus Rex was three quarters of a meter long. Wow. And not only that, but, you know, it wasn't a long snake-like thing. It was a oval, you know, broad oval humpbacked uh, thing that was a, nearly a meter long. Wow. And uh, it's in Canada. You can find that one in Canada. But there are other ones in the running. Uh, Australia has uh, Redlichia Rex, which is, you know, not quite two-thirds the size of Isotelus Rex. I think that's the undisputed champion. That's some of the oldest, the Redlichia. Right, Redlichia rex is one of the oldest large ones, and its mouth parts, its bases are also spiny. So we know it was a major predator um, in those days. So those are, are the largest ones. So it's Cambrian. Cambrian, that one. And uh, Isotelus rex is, let's see, it's an asaphid, so that would make it the Silurian at the latest. Right, right. So the smallest ones, I mean, it's hard, right? Because to have a small adult trilobite... Yeah, how do you know if it's adult or if it's uh, a, yeah. a baby? Well, um, trilobites grow by adding a segment each oh. bolt. Oh. And so when you get a whole bunch of specimens, when you get to the point where you see no more larger number of, of segments for that species, and each species has very set numbers of segments, then you can say, oh, this is an adult. We haven't seen a larger specimen with any more segments than that. And uh, Acanthopleurella, I think, is the record holder. It's just about a millimeter long wow. as an adult. I had no idea they actually add segments to them. Exactly. So they're actually growing like that, and then they top out at a certain number of segments? Exactly. And, then, huh. and even at that point, though, they can grow larger, but they don't add any more segments. Oh, good to know. Wow. How do they reproduce? Ah, good question. And is there sexual dimorphism? That is also a good question, right? Because they're fossil, we have no idea whether or not two different morphologies might be a male and a female, or whether or not we have two different species there. Um, even if they live in the same place, there are always communities of arthropods living in the same place. Um, so, so it's a difficult thing. But people have not seen um, dimorphism in trilobites. Uh, if you have a particular trilobite, you'll find an age series where they get larger and larger, but you don't find much in the way of morphology differences between the adults. Males and females probably looked a lot like each other. Uh, they probably made it in the same way most arthropods do, butt to butt. Um, however, I think Richard Forty was the one that showed that the brooding area right, that's what I was wondering about. Yeah. is in the front of the head. What? They put eggs on their head? Yeah. Yeah, the eggs are inside of the cephalon. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so when they lay their eggs, it's probably during a molt. Right. And when you think about water fleas, you know, Daphnia, those little guys that uh, freshwater water fleas. Right, right. Um, they also store their eggs under their carapace. And when they molt, the eggs are released. Oh. So do the females have enlarged, basically, areas of their, on their cephalon? Is that... That's larger, so there is dimorphism there. Yes, and so that's uh, that's what 4D documented, was that a particular species of trilobite, especially the large uh, adults, would have a bulge at the front, just in front of the glabella, which is the foremost part of the axis. Wow, that's so, cool. 
do you think, uh, now here's an absurd question, but maybe you've thought about it. Um, how do you think they would taste with a little bit of lemon <laughs> and garlic? <laughs> you know, I bet the larger ones, the legs would be very much like shrimp. Well, but do you think you could get the big body, scoop them out, just kind of... Well, I don't need shrimp legs. I'll cook, yeah. I'll fry up the tail, but... Uh... But don't you, know, you I, think I... there'd be a big chunk of meat in there somewhere? Mm, not really. really. When you look at the... When you look at the axis of the trilobite, that is the most convex part. And so I think the axis lobe would have good mus muscles in there. And so, you know, if you're going to be attacking a trilobite, might as well gra grab all the soft parts. And so you need to cover those soft parts up with a, with a hard shell. So the if you look at a cross-section of a trilobite, there might be a, a, a central portion that looks like an, a sphere, but the two pluri on the sides are very thin and just go over as a shield. Uh, for the soft legs underneath. We couldn't peel out a big shrimp-like form out of the center of it and slurp that. Or could we? We could, baby. I think we could do that, but it wouldn't have... Uh, if you had a large trilobite, just look for the meat in the middle, right, middle section. Right, I do dream of barbecuing them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, they'd be so tasty. Hmm. I think so. I don't think they would taste bad, especially the predatory ones, right? The ones that eat muck and mud, maybe they would taste a little bit muddy. Yeah. But... Well, what what ate trilobites? There are there there are trilobites that have big wounds. Uh, the animal really? carrots maybe bit them. Wait, wait. They have. Uh, there's yeah. evidence of predation on them. Oh yeah, for sure. There are some really interesting ones where there's not only a wound taken out of the side pleury, but you can see the regrowth of the pleury. You know how arthropods with each molt can repair the damage done. So they know they survived the attack and we're re, uh, regrowing wow. their um, exoskeleton. Are there any uh, fossils where you see the molting happening? It's halfway oh, yeah. through oh, the yeah. molt? There are lots of them in which you can tell that it's a molt because of the way the cephalon is flipped because oh. the animal emerges and turns things, oh. turns things around. Uh, but, you know, fish, as soon as fish evolved in the Devonian, I think it was really hard times for trilobites. That's why we see the Ordovician and then the Devonian and the, and the uh, Carboniferous trilobite diversity go way down. Not only that, but in the Devonian trilobites, you see the really spiny ones. And so you know they were defending against predators. Right, right. Oh. You know, what I, I, I was imagining, that I just realized the placoderms are like maybe ideal, you know, trilobite breaking open fish and, yeah. you know, pop them open well, how, and suck them out. But how thick you think those those carapaces are, those, those uh, cephalons and... and you know, it, a shrimp is not that thick, but a but a crab is, and a lobster is yeah. as well, right? So some of the larger trilobites, I'm sure, had heavy duty armor. Had heavy duty um, armor, and you know, when you were talking about uh, preparation of trilobites, right. and a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll break a trilobite node in half and look at the cross section. So they'll see the two pleury and then the hump of the axial lobe. And they say, okay, that's where that trilobite is. It's this many centimeters below the top. And so they'll glue the two back together oh. with crazy glue. And they'll know exactly where that trilobite is and then can work their way down through the uh, material on the top to, to get, get to, to it. To get to the spikes and the antennae. Yeah. And they'll use grit of different hardness. You have to find a grit that's harder than the matrix, the surrounding rock, and softer than the shell of the trilobite. Oh, you mean on, on a little prep needle or like a, a, a Dremel or what? It's a little... Uh... Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a sandblaster. Right, it's right. a tiny little sandblaster that shoots grit and water. Oh. And so you're essentially washing mud off the truck. Right, right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> do, do, you, uh, 
Do you prep them out yourself? Do you buy them? Pre- How do you get your trilobites? You get them from collectors or you have relationships with guys that send you trilobites or what? When I was starting, uh, I would go to eBay and I would, uh, <laughs> I would look for trilobites there. But as soon as that website came out, I would get letters from folks and say, I see that you have trilobites in your collection, but you do not have a good series from uh-huh. Portugal. So I am sending you really? a box oh. of trilobites from Portugal. Oh, <laughs> so that's great. I would get these boxes that would show up at my office and I would open them up and there would be a box of trilobite wow, specimens that's cool. from, from a particular place. The favorite, uh, the one that you you said, could I bring any of the trilobites that I've got? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. One of, one just... of my favorites, one of my favorites is from China. Oh. And it's a, it's a wonderful, it's okay, a wonderful Okay, we got to do one. a screenshot the... of this, by the way. <laughs> okay. This is absolutely sure. insane. I'll hold up. I'll hold up one too, Dave. Is this the moment? Okay, get very good. Wait, hold on a okay, second. You're gonna do your screen no, Hold on, I gotta get it set up, gentlemen. Just wait a second. Wait, just <laughs> hold your horses. Not even ready. I have a fake one right here. This is this oh, is a fake awesome. ops. It's fake. Hold on, no, just, <laughs> no. just fake, fake Just ops. calm down, gentlemen. I'm still. I paid 15 bucks for it, so I know it's fake. This out here. This is and... just stand by. And I'll have to hold up mine too. Come on, Dave. Not just you can. They're not that heavy. No, I mine can't is, keep this spot. Okay, ready? Five, it's a pretty thick four, one. Four, <laughs> three, two, one. Okay, awesome. Yeah, there we Sam, go. Sam, what, what what was this? Let's take a look at that again. What what was your specimen? Sure, sure. I need to stop for a second. The next bit you're about to hear had some background noise, and we couldn't figure out what it was, but it turned out to be a tropical rainstorm that just magically appeared during Sam's discussion. I think it's awesome, so I kept it in. So this is a Dame Zella. Dame Zella, it's a representative of the, of the superfamily Dame Zelloidea. And it used to be um, classified as a lichid, which is one of the most uncommon of the trilobite orders. Um, but Dame Zella has now been split out into the Odontoplurida, which used to be part of the lichida as well. But the thing is, they're so rare. One of my early goals was to have a representative of each order. That was easy to do. Then each uh, suborder, which is a little bit harder, then each superfamily of trilobites. And the Dames Eloidea eluded me. I could not get a good specimen of it. I would get a, you know, maybe a pagidium or a partial cephalon or something like that. Um, and then, uh, and China, I knew China was the source oh, for the best okay. Dames Alloyd fossils. And so I thought, well, you know, I wonder if I could contact someone in China, but they beat me to it. They contacted me first and said, I would like to translate your website into Chinese. Oh, cool. And I said, great, yeah, let's, let's do that. And I give you permission to do so. Um, and so he was working at it. He would send me, you know, versions of it that I couldn't judge. I don't speak Chinese or, or read Chinese, but they looked, they looked good. And, and at the end, uh, he was so happy and satisfied. And, and he said, I have access to Chinese trilobites and what would you like? And so I said, oh, do you have oh, a wow. salah? <laughs> so he gifted you with that. He gifted me with this. Oh, that's cool. And it's, Can uh, I stop for a second, gentlemen? In... I'm hearing a, a noise that? in the background. It was pouring rain outside. Oh. oh. Yeah, suddenly. That's what that was? Yeah. I have a trilobite from Morocco that a friend gave to me, and I did not collect it. That's why I didn't. I See, I collected this one. Ah, so lucky. I'm going to go get that. Yeah, actually, while Dave is gone. <laughs> uh-huh. We'll keep recording. 
So how do you, you know, if you're ordering stuff off the internet, how do you know you're going to get a, a real trilobite? Because, you know, I go to the gem and mineral show in, in Arizona and I, I got this $15 fake hops here and I know it's not real because I put it right. out in the garden. It's already fading. So, you know, I mean, ah. so this, and that's a Moroccan one he's got there too, but how do you, how do you know? Yeah. Well, um, I know that there are several rules of thumb. And in fact, there's a whole website uh, that that deals with fake trilobites. And they, they say, use the hot needle test because they often use resin. And so you plunge a hot needle into it. And if it sizzles and smells like resin, then you've got a fake there for sure. Um, you, if you know your trilobite uh, morphology, um, then you can say, how many segments is this species supposed to have? Because they were often composites. So take the hind end that looks really nice and the front end that looks really nice, but they were both incomplete and they will fit them together. Oh, sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you can also tell um, because the matrix on parts of it won't match. Right, right. right. So, um, but the main way that I do it is I question the seller. I ask them to send multiple photos. I'll ask them where they got them from if they know who prepared it, the more that they know and the more that they answer correctly, the more confident you can be that, that you're getting something good. Um, one of my favorite ones in my collection is a gigantic, I mean, the trilobite is a large red lichid, not only one, but one, two, three, four, five individuals, all large on one piece. Really? Wow. And it was on eBay. The starting bid was 25 bucks. The, the, the image of it, was a thumbnail so blurry right. that you couldn't tell what it was. And so I contacted the person and I said, how big is this trilobite? And, you know, where did you get it? And he had all the answers, um, the site from which it was gotten and, uh, and, the, and the nature of the preparation. So I put in a, a bid for 25 bucks and because the picture was so lousy, nobody else oh, bid wow. on it. And so it was $25, and then, and then he had to ship it from Morocco. And oh, that dear. Cost a, that cost $100, and it came in a beautiful wooden crate to my office. So even though it was like a big mortality slab and there were several on there, it was not a composite. It was actually the – it was a rock with five trilobites on it. Yeah. When I opened it up, I was so disappointed because it was just this gray slab. And I thought, what is oh, this? Oh, you didn't turn it off. over. <laughs> No, and even the other side was gray. Um, but then I noticed the tissue paper that was sticking out of the edges, and it turned out to be three pieces that were all put together, and each piece was split out, oh. had the positive and negative oh impressions of the, of the trilobites, and then on the other side of it, split out two more of them on the underside. So there would be you know, something like 10 different impression and positive uh, wow. specimens and in is... that one twenty-five dollar. <laughs> That's beautiful! <laughs> wow. Why is Morocco such a treasure trove yeah. of trilobites? It's an amazing thing. Um, Morocco has connections with Oklahoma, and so if you look at the genera of uh, Moroccan trilobites, those same genera are in Oklahoma. You know things like Dicronopterus. Monstrosus, which is the one that you've got there, and Dichromnopterus hamatus, which is out of Oklahoma, look very much the same. And there are other other ones in in corresponding genera that are. Can there. I guess either they were part of the same seaway back in Pangaea times, or they existed in the same 
ocean conditions. Now, they were, the, the first one oh, is correct. Okay. If you push the clock back to when the continents were not yet separated, North and South America from Africa, Europe, um, they were right next to each other. There was just a narrow strait between the two. Wow. And so they were the same. And so Spain and Morocco are also both really trilobite rich, and they're right next to each other with just the Straits of Gibraltar right. separating them, right? Right. So Morocco turns out to be a hotspot, but Spain is the emerging hotspot now. Oh, really? Um, there, there's always a contest on who has the oldest trilobite. And it seems right now that Spain is the winner. Ironically, it's not a red lichida. Red lichida is supposed to be the basal set of trilobites. Instead, this is some primitive... It's an agnostida. No, it's not. It's a primitive Ticoparian. <laughs> and so... I really don't know what I'm talking about. I just want to sound like I do. And so um, now they're saying, well, this means that, you know, Ticoparida and Red Lichida were existing in the same time, and perhaps they don't even uh, deserve to be separated. So <laughs> it's, it's, this is early Cambrian then? Mm-hmm. Wow. These are the very first trilobites so, uh, wow. that, in the record. Oh, sorry, gentlemen. <laughs> I, there's Dave's Auto curtains. Automation. It is. It <laughs> is. This, this, this opens one hour before sunset. And, uh, oh, suddenly yeah. uh, Dave looks good in the sunlight yeah, there. But I, I have, a, yeah, there you I have go. a question. I was going to say, I, I love the idea that uh, Oklahoma and China could get together via trilobites. I love that. Dave has a question. Yeah, it's uh, Oklahoma and Morocco. No, Oklahoma and China, didn't you say? No, no, it was Oklahoma and Morocco. Oh, all okay. right. Uh, the question I have, so the Cambrian pretty much starts 535 million years ago, around there, give or take a yeah, few 542. weeks. 542. <laughs> and yeah. so do the trilobites show up in the fossil record at that time marker? Or now you're saying they're showing up in the Edacrian? No, they're not showing up in the Ediacaran. They're showing up um, not at the base of the Cambrian, but in the start of Series 2. So there are four Series to the Cambrian, and they define where Series 2 begins. Oh, okay. So the Cambrian is, is segmented like a trilobite into four segments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and it used to be that trilobites were the definition of where the Cambrian began. Oh. Um, but whenever you define the beginning of, a, of an epoch, is it an epoch or an eon? I forget now. Epoch. Um, whenever you define the bottom, you do it based on the fossils that are found there. Right. And so trilobites and particular other fossils define the Cambrian. And then they found those other fossils much earlier than trilobites. And trilobites now define the second series of the You mean Cambrian. the Burgess Shale organisms or is it before Burgess no, Shale? that's later. Yeah. Burgess is after the start of trilobites. But the Burgess shales are great for exploring the close relatives of trilobites. Trilobites are only well-preserved because they have the hard shell. And anything that had, say, something that was only like the underside of a trilobite would rarely preserve at all. And so the Burgess shales and Chengjiang in, in China, those are really important sites. And there are more and more of those showing up all the time. Wow. You have on your website uh, Parvano Carina? Parvano Carina, yeah. that's, that is, is that? maybe where where trilobites come from? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's what, uh, so that's one of my few paleontological publications. Okay. And uh, and it's because I had the idea that Parvan uh, Corina, um, which is a, a kind of shield-shaped enigmatic fossil, 
that has three lobes mm -hmm. and also this anchor shaped feature at the at the front end i thought well perhaps this was the precursor of trilobites and i said so on my website i saw but that it was very speculative and then a chinese researcher said, you have scooped me. I am going to publish. I was going to publish on Barabano Karina. <laughs> and so he said, well, uh, would you, can you be a co-author on this paper then? And I said, sure. And, uh, and so I created, so, I created all of the images yeah. and then uh, contributed to the discussion of it, um, chose other examples of, of very primitive trilobites that share that same characteristic anchor-shaped front. And then, and then we. So you discovered the mother of all trilobites. Well, uh, the origins, <laughs> but that's pretty cool, you know. But that's what's amazing too about Sam. You are a PhD, but you don't really publish in trilobites. That's one of your only papers. But taking a big left turn here, you published a paper that was in American Scientist magazine, a Hawaiian Renaissance that could save the world, and. That is such a, it came out only in 2019, last year. It's a beautiful paper. It was on the cover. It's got some really just wonderful things about it. And, and you're an expert in Hawaiian culture and the history of the island. But wait, he's and, also an expert yeah. in Hawaiian ecosystems. So that was my, that was my PhD was in zoology. And I studied the Hawaiian happy face spider. Maybe you guys <laughs> never even what? heard about that. No. Look it up. The Hawaiian happy face spider is an endemic spider that exists only in the Hawaiian Islands. It's beautiful, a bright, transparent yellow body with eyebrows and eye on the markings of the body look like a clown face smiling hmm. at you. Um, and it became the poster child for Hawaiian conservation because wow. who could not fail to fall in love with this spider? And yet I was telling the person who was the macro photographer of those spiders, what is known about their biology? And he said, absolutely nothing. I said, well, somebody's got to do something about that. And he said, yeah, somebody should. Um, so I, uh, I joined the Animal Behavior Graduate Group in UC Davis oh, wow. um, and, and chose that uh, spider and did a comparative behavioral ecology of Hawaiian happy face spiders wow. and different populations on different islands. And that was my PhD. But being in there, I had it was a synecological study. In other words, the study of the ecology of an animal within its environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to know all of the plants, and I had to know all of its predators, and and those kinds of things. So so it was. I'm one of those students that took more botany courses during my zoology degree in <laughs> uh, when I got my B bachelor's degree than I took zoology courses. So I was always interested in general ecology. And so when the Nature Conservancy said. How would you like to be our exploratory ecologist for the wow. Conservancy's program in Hawaii? Um, I said, sure, why not? I can do, I had to give up a postdoc at UH to do it. And I told them that I would de dedicate one to three years with this NGO before I went back to teach and do research. And it's been 35 years now. And, uh, <laughs> and I, could still, I could still leave the Conservancy and join the University of Hawaii and teach and do research. So it's been a good thing. Uh, for me. Reading your paper, it was inspiring and it also gives, it gives you hope that there might be a future for humans on planet Earth, maybe. But I had never heard of the Holdridge life zones. So there are basic riparian zones on planet Earth that go all the way from 
Is it based on rainfall or is it based on habitat? But there are these zones. Why don't you explain it and then explain sure. why Hawaii is so special? So Holdridge was an ecologist and his, his interest was global ecosystems. And so he came up with a really cool system that uses temperature and moisture as two of its axes. Um, and then the relationship of evapotranspiration um, on the other axis. And so the colder it gets, the wetter things can be. The hotter it gets, the more humid, but the faster plants lose, um, lose moisture. Um, and so he created this triangle based on those axes, and it covered every single, if you want to find tundra, it's right there in this triangle. If you want to find tropical rainforest, it's on the wet end within this, within this triangle. Hmm. Um, and so he created this system, and there were something like 37 or 38 different Holdridge life zones that cover everything from the polar systems to the equatorial uh, wet forest. And when Holdridge is mapped on the United States, excluding Hawaii, you might get something like 28. No, no, you might get something like, uh, we, we have 28. Hawaii. You might get like 14 yeah. or 15, like right. Arizona. We have 28 of them. We wow. have in, the, in one small area, the most packed Holdridge life zones of any place on earth. Brazil has something like 17. And so Whoa. Brazil has 40 degrees of, of latitudinal spread and goes to the Andes and into the Amazonian rainforest. And yet Hawaii has more uh, Holdridge life zones than Yeah, but that's than also, you, you cheat though. You have one of the tallest, you have the tallest mountain on the planet and one of the yeah. highest mountains. It's not a cheat, it's yeah, just man. luck. <laughs> it's the luck of the, it's the, luck of the yeah, job. You're blessed with it. And so uh, if we were not high islands, we would be like Micronesia, where it's just atoll ecosystems and pretty much right, that's it. Right. But because we go up to 14,000 feet and because we're on the uh, close to the tropic subtropic um, margin, then the higher you go, the more temperate you become. And then you get higher than that and you get into the nival and polar, polar kinds of ecosystems. So it's really amazing how much we have. We're a microcosm of the Earth in one archipelago. And so if you can figure out how to live there sustainably with those ecosystems, then you've got the model for living elsewhere on the planet, anywhere on the planet. The gist of your paper was that historically, there were maybe almost as many people living on the Hawaiian Islands as there are today, but it was radically different then. And it sustained itself for a thousand years and now it's dramatically different. What were people doing in Hawaii six, seven hundred years ago that could help save the planet now? I think there were a whole bunch of uh, really interesting patterns to pre-contact existence in, in Hawaii. And one of them was the relationship of people to the land. Mm -hmm. In Hawaii, every living thing, or at least if you look at the plants, almost everything uh, that you've got in the vascular plants has a Hawaiian name, which means they were paying attention to the smallest mosses and ferns all the way up to the largest trees. And that's because living things were considered ancestral relatives. I mean, the same is true in many indigenous peoples, right? Their beliefs of the relatedness of people from in the natural world and the lack of separation between what is natural and what is human. Right. Whereas in Western sense, nature and man are two different things. And the, one of the theme, great themes in, is man against nature. Right. right and then right. man against man and the man against himself are the three major themes of Western literature. <laughs> um, so, so the whole idea of humans and environment being one and the health of humanity being recognized as tied intimately with the health of your environment, uh, that was a natural thing in Hawaii. 
And so you could no more abuse your environment than you would abuse your grandmother, let's mm. say. Right. Right. Because, yeah. the, because the environment was ancestral to you. Um, so that meant that the, all of the upper elevation areas were considered Sacred. the realm of the gods. Yeah, the realm of the gods. And therefore, all of the watershed forests were protected. The zone in which people actually lived and fished were often semi-wild. And so when you look at the way that, say, taro, which was the staple for Hawaii, was grown, it was grown in these wetlands that pulled water through a series of irrigation canals through the fields and then returned them back to the stream again. And wow. in, uh, in setting up that system, all of the water birds benefited, all of the riparian, shallow, and estuarine species benefited. All of the species, say, trees that would have been growing in the bottoms of valleys didn't go extinct either because there were many places in those valleys that were just as wet but too steep or, or unsuitable for agriculture. Yeah. So you would have this mix of semi-wild and completely wild right next to each other, all the way down from the top of the mountain to the ocean. and. Um, that allowed for ecosystem services to continue despite the fact that you had really intensive agriculture that could support hundreds of thousands of people in a relatively small area. So when we looked at the archaeology and the traditional accounts and the modeling for agriculture in Hawaii, we found that only 15% of the land area provided for all of the needs in a system that was 100% self-sufficient. Right now in Hawaii, 15% of our food comes from the land here and 80, 85%. Exactly. Or Costco yeah. or, or, or wherever. And so we're dismal at our self-sufficiency right now. And yet we know that we had slightly few people and a hundred percent self-sufficiency and a human footprint that was only 15% of the, of the land area. Now our human footprint on Oahu is 85% of the land area. Wow. And some of the worst wow. traffic on the planet. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, reading your, your paper was inspirational, and uh, it, it kind of gives hope that humanity, we might have a chance. You know, sadly, you wrote that Hawaii is the extinction capital of the world. When you look at what was before European contact and what exists today. But your paper outlines that there is a way for sustainability. And I was impressed that you got to travel on the Hawaiian voyaging canoe that was built with traditional methods and, and traditional trees and lumber. Uh, it is called the Hokulea. Is that right? Hokulea. Hokulea. Yes. And uh -huh. this voyaging canoe proved that the Hawaiians did come from somewhere in Polynesia and was the original first voyage, the maiden voyage, the, the recent one, taken to Fiji or where or Tahiti? It was Tahiti, right? and that was in 1976. And then you took it on a voyage circumnavigating the globe or part of it? Yeah. So uh, it were there were 29 legs of that voyage, mm. and I was able to join leg 9 and leg 27 and 28, uh, because 27 and 28 were Galapagos and Rapa Nui. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Good move. Nice move, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, leg 9 was New Zealand. So oh, that wow. was uh, that so you was stayed in the awesome Pacific. Well. So Rapa Nui, Easter Island, that is the classic example of humanity literally wiping not only the ecosystem out but themselves. So my my question to you is, what did you learn? What can you tell me, someone sitting in Southern California? What can I do to make my life and my world more sustainable? Hmm, 
That's a that's a good question, and I think that all of us can do things to lighten our footprint. That's the main thing. If we collectively were rec- were cognizant of the fact that we have our impacts. For example, I have a, I have a Nissan Leaf, and I have solar panels on my house. The solar panels have already paid for themselves, and they supply the electricity to the car that I used to to drive around. Mm. And so, the thing is, you can think out what kinds of things you can do to be part of the movement away from fossil fuels and eventually away from global warming crisis. You can think about making native species wherever you are popular and valued by the people that live that live there. I think I said in my in in a TED talk that I gave that aloha aina that is love for your land is the main thing that allows people to to take care of their place. You have to know your place and you can't if you don't know it then you can't love it. If you don't love it then you're not going to care for it. So that's the that's the whole um, series. So learn about your place and learn about the biodiversity that's native to your area, wherever you are, and find out what its history has been. That's what the Hawaiian Footprint Project was all about, where the American scientist thing was telling the story of how things changed from before to the way they are now, and how we might be able to restore some of that uh, into the future. That's what I would say. Think about where you are, what's there, and and do what you can. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. that's a. That's a wonderful thought, Sam. And your your TED talk, I googled it up and watched it uh, uh, about uh, the, the culture. And I, what is the other half of aloha that we're not oh, okay. getting? So aloha, aloha is a is a very universal word. You can go almost anywhere in the world. And and aina is the concept of the land that you're upon. Hmm. Oh. Um, and so. And so aloha aina is essentially just your expression of love for the land. Wow. And uh, and that expression of love is the same that you would give to close family relatives if you're if you um, subscribe greeting? to the idea. Um, no, aloha is the greeting. Yes, and aloha can be defined as empathetic compassion. So you can say aloha to someone when you when they've had a loss and they're very sad. You can tell them aloha. And it means that I feel you, essentially, oh, right? Oh, cool. And mahalo um, is the same the, thing. Mahalo is hello and goodbye, correct? Well, mahalo is gratitude. Oh, and so thank mahalo you. is the way, oh. the way you say thank you. That's why you see it on the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> In Hawaii, it's like, thank you for oh. using the trash can. But people think that mahalo means trash can, oh, which no. is like so sad. <laughs> I, I was reading your bio and I saw that uh, you approached your professors for your undergraduate degree and you said, I've spent two years learning the Hawaiian language, the indigenous language. I would like to get credit for that. And your professors were kind of taken aback, but then they thought that was a great idea. And it was really yeah. part of your process of knowing where you're from and what you're all about, your, your surroundings. That, that's true. And in fact, I was the very first student to have Hawaiian accepted as a language toward a science degree. Score. Wow. Since then, there have been many, right? And now I think nobody thinks twice about, about doing that. But at the time, the department policy was that it had to be the one of the scientific languages, German, Japanese, Russian, right? Spanish, Latin. French. Um, those were the... <laughs> Those were the <laughs> those were the those were the accepted ones. But I had um, two professors that were willing to step up and say, um, "Sam is going to go away, get his graduate degree, come back to Hawaii, and devote himself to conservation here. So to learn Hawaiian and to be able to to wield it 
um, is going to be important. And so they, they argued for me and I, I was able to, to get that done. Wow. And you've done it. Yeah. You may not know that the, because of the Hawaiian language newspapers, which were published from 1830 or so all the way up into the 20th century, comprising millions of pages of Hawaiian language text that is now being digitized gradually so that it's in searchable form. Wow. That represents the largest Oceanian indigenous knowledge archive in the world. Wow. And is, did you dive deep into studying those papers from the 1800s then? Uh, yes, and so that was part of the way that we that we derived the Hawaiian footprint. How many people lived there and what was going on? Exactly. When we used archaeology and modeling of plant physiology to figure out where the staple crops could grow best, um, and the archaeology matched our model like so closely that it was almost uncanny, huh. it became clear that every single spot that could raise sweet potato and taro was being used. The archaeology said, that that was the case. So Hawaiians had hit the, um, what do you call it? The carrying capacity. Wow. And, and probably realized that they couldn't go beyond that. You know, if you went into marginal areas, then in a bad year, population is going to collapse. You're not going to be able to, to maintain people. Traditional sources named every single one of those sites, the stories, the chants, and the like that are in those Hawaiian language archives completely corroborated the, the plant physiology models and the archaeology. So that's the way that you bring traditional knowledge and science in, into the fold and, and, and use them together. That's, that's remarkable. And really, you know, reaching the carrying capacity, that's kind of key to understanding the crisis that we're in right now. Mm. The earth is beyond, we, all the scientists are saying we're beyond the carrying capacity. We need to dial it back. Hey, well, just a, to switch it back to deep time, if you could travel back in time and only go back in time, what era, what period of time would you like to go to and what would you like to see? Well, you know, everyone speculates wildly about the Cambrian explosion, about the period of time in which the, the majority of the diversity on Earth came into being. That would be a really fascinating time to visit. Uh, the fossil record is pretty poor. And so to be there in those living ecosystems as they're evolving would have been one of the most fun things to do. I'm sure we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg of the diversity that existed at those times. And so to be able to go back and get a full picture of what was going on then would be so much fun. We need another Burgess Shale, though there is a Chinese one, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chengjiang is the, yeah. is the name of it. So and you... there are more and more of them showing up in other places. You'd want to go snorkeling in the Cambrian, uh, early Cambrian? <laughs> sure. Or even into the into the pre-Cambrian. Well, the pre-Cambrian, yeah, sure. We have to see what was, yeah, we know what the explosion looks like, all the hard body stuff. And actually, here's an absurd question for you both. If you're snorkeling back in the Cambrian, a guy who studied trilobites so much, what color are your trilobites? Ah, uh, I helped a, a model maker yeah. uh, create a nice trilobite image, uh, a model, trilobite model, it's about this big, I love yeah. it, for, for a museum in Germany. Uh, we were talking about coloration, and so we went through, you know, the, the, um, the tropical uh, catalogs of lobsters and mm -hmm. crabs and shrimp and showed a huge variety of bright colors, sometimes very dull colors as well, right? Everything from a single color. Isopods are dull colors. 
Exactly. Horseshoe crabs don't have much. Then rainbow craze, painted craze, mm -hmm. look like the rainbow. And what did you settle on? Yeah. So we settled on, on something that had these uh, um, nice uh, markings on the margins and, you know, on the edges of things. And so they were entirely believable because we were basing them on, on existing diversity cool. of, of coloration and arthropods. He created one for the museum. He created one for Richard Forty in London, and he sent one to me, and oh, I was so tickled by that. You lucky. That's <laughs> hey, great. can we get a picture of that so we can post it on our website? Uh, I will have to see whether or not I can drum it up. It's in my office, and I haven't been to my office right. except for two days ago. Well, maybe the artist that created it has a, an image of it, but it'd be cool to share that. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always wondered if, uh, if they're like calico or camouflage or bright red or, you know, so anyways. So, hey, Sam. It has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Here I am in Alaska. You are in Hawaii. Dave's in California. And uh, shooting the breeze with you about trilobites. Yeah. So much fun. And, and man, I want to go to Hawaii again. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yep. Me too. Well, I want to go back. Know, it's where I got my dive cert. <laughs> awesome. It's a great place to be. And I'm glad that I'm here. I'm the only one of us three in a tank top. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, thanks, Sam. We'll talk yeah. to you soon. And thank you so much for a great interview. Yeah. My pleasure. Great to talk with you guys. Lots of fun. That was really fun. I don't know if you can see uh, on our Zoom call, but I've got a smile on my face like the whole time listening to him talk. Yeah, no, Sam, uh, it's a really unique story, yeah. too. A guy from Hawaii who becomes a trilobite expert. He's respected around the world, worked with all the best trilobitologists. But yet, and he's a scientist, but he doesn't work on yeah. trilobites. So it's a true passion, uh, you know, labor of now, love. Now, trilobites being yeah. one of your spirit animals, is did you learn anything? Did you, was anything surprised you about what he said? I didn't know that thing about the segments. I knew there had to be like a, you know, I thought they were born with the, all the segments. But yeah, now I know that they actually grew these segments, but then they stopped. I so, so like a, a teenage trilobite will have five segments and an adult will have eight? Is that what is that what you mean by that? I think that's yeah. what he was saying. The segments and and I'd always suspected too the old trilobites. It's not the head, the head, the body, and the tail. It's the lobes. And so he was talking yeah. about that vertical thing, but trilobes. Oh. And yeah, we st we'll still keep working on you with the uh, genus species order genus species thing. You're getting it though, yeah, right? Yeah, I think what I don't have in my head is an actual picture of. For me, I, I'm very graphic image oriented and i need to it helps i need to, to see, see the, what the kingdom yeah. is it's, i need to see a picture of a kingdom and then i need to see a picture of orders i need to see a picture of phylum so they're just latin words to me and i need to figure out how to put them into well pictures. it's really a way of classifying life and so when you if you say you need a picture of the kingdom you're talking animals or plants okay. and animals is like everything yeah, we, well, let's do that Okay, later. all right, we're, all right, all right. We're the artist in the... Yeah, let's not break that down. <laughs> not right now. But anyways, yeah, not right now. But anyways, as you it orders and families and then genus and species. And so Sam has actually done a whole lot of work. That website, trilobite.info, is broken down into like everything you'd ever yeah. need to know about trilobites. But there you can go sort through the orders and then drill down into the the genera and then and the species And there's pictures there. everywhere. It's not just boring text. Yep. It literally yep. has pictures. And he drew them he all. Drew them all. He drew them all. Yeah, there's hundreds of I'm drawings on there. I'm looking at the page right now, drawings. trilobite cephalon, and it shows 
every little bit. What's well, a cephalon? Yeah, that's the head part. The head part. Yeah, he threw a lot of Latin at us that was kind of you know beyond us. But even though we're paleo nerds, he really spoke the trilobite language. So we'll have a lot of that uh, yeah. links to his website, of course, pictures of Sam and his youth and Sam doing this and that and the other thing. Throwback Thursday. But uh, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to Hawaii. And I think because of this, I will have a much deeper appreciation for that island archipelago. Yes, the archipelago of Hawaii. You said that well, sir. Hey, Ray, um, please, uh, I want you to tell our listeners that if they want to ask you a question, they can go to our Facebook page or Instagram or, or wherever or the website and ask you a question or ask me a question. We are also taking requests for paleontologists or scientists they'd like to hear from. Or subjects. People have been clamoring for some yeah, subjects. subjects too, yeah, subjects, yeah. If you want to hear a particular subject that's keeping you up at night, you can reach us at paleonerds.com or on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. But anyway, hey, Dave, another fun episode. It was great. Learned a lot. It was great. Had fun. And, you know, we're not too far away from the end of season two. And by the way, I'm just going to sneak this in. Our last and final finale guest is one of the greatest and most famous paleontologists on planet Earth, alive today. Oh man, the anticipation mounts. Oh, who could that be? Oh wait, I was there, so I know who it is. <laughs> okay, Ray. <laughs> Goodbye right, from Ojai, California. From beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska on Revillagigedo Island. It's Mr. Troll signing off. See you, man. Aloha. Aloha. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs>